Ladies, you know fellas will say anything, right? Like, yeah, I'm really famous in Belgium. Or back when I hiked Everest. But what if he tells you this? I just figured she was out of my league. I needed something that was going to set me apart. But I just blurted it out really fast. I have cancer. On the next Snap Judgment, from PRX and NPR, Trixie. People lie. And then I meet her dad, and her dad says, hey, I'm Dr. So-and-so. So I was like, maybe he's a PhD. You know, and he goes, oh, well, I'm an oncologist. Storytelling with the beat. Stay tuned. So I was in high school, right? And this fine new girl showed up one day. Black hair, brown skin, a pal. I rolled up to her. What's your name? Anna. Anna, huh? Well, you know, this and that and funny, funny joke. And finally, I had to ask her the most American of questions. What are you? Mexican. Mexican, huh? Well, cool. Well, maybe we can kick it sometime. Maybe. I was all happy. I told my boy Carlos, and Carlos was like, look, you can't pull your tired game with Mexican girls. My game is tight. Your game is backwards. Because with Mexican girls, you got to talk to the mother and the father first. Then you talk to the girl. For real? And you bring gifts. Flowers for mommy. Something that shows you're serious-minded for pops. Nothing for her. You only speak Spanish. It's my second semester. Speak Spanish. It's a sign of respect. So I asked Anna if I could come over and meet her folks. Why do you want to meet my parents? I just do, all right? I know how things work. Anna said, well, they'll be home tomorrow afternoon. The next day, I was prepared. Yellow roses for the moms, hardcover. Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence Enemies in Spanish for the mister so he knew I was about my business. I knocked. Anna's mother opened the door. The apple did not fall far from the tree. Brown skin, long black hair. I bowed and presented her with the flower. Hola, mi nombre es Glenn Washington. She smiled, accepted the roses, and motioned inside. Dr. Patel is looking forward to meeting you. Would you like some chai? Si, si, gracias. She ushered me to a couch in a formal living room. A beautiful painting hung from the wall where a man with the head of an elephant gestured to his followers. Anna's father sat waiting. He was a slim, slightly built man in a dark suit. Hola, senor, I said, handing him the book. Donde esta la biblioteca? He turned to me studied the book for a moment, looked at me. I pointed to the elephant-headed man. Senor, la painting. Que es Inca or Aztec? What are you? Anna came into the room with four cups. Anna's mother offered me a sticky pastry. These are gulab jamun. They are very popular in the Punjab, where we're from. I bit into one of the desserts. It was sweet, spongy. Es delicioso. This would be muy magnifico with enchiladas. Which part of Mexico is the Punjab? Then there were these angry footfalls bounding down the stairs. This is her fault! Anna's brother, his face was all twisted into a grimace. This stupid kid thinks we're a Mexican because that's what she's telling everybody at school. Anupana? What is your brother talking about? Anupana? Anna said... Glenn, I think you need to go. Why does this fellow believe we're from Mexico? I'm like, Anna, what's going on? Papa's like, Anna? What is an Anna? Who is Anna? The brother shouted, who does she think she is? Hey, I know family conflict. Time for me to be up out. I bowed to the mother and father. Muchachos, Tommy and adios. Anupana walked me to the door. You know, you're lucky you're fine. Where are you from for real? She looked me straight in the eye 
kissed me on the cheek and whispered in my ear, I'm from Mexico. Today on Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR, Trixie. White lies, cold blooded deceptions, and whoppers. Some you tell to others, but most folk save the best one for themselves. For the next 60 minutes, I'm the only one telling the truth. My name is Dick Cheney, and you're listening to Snap Judgment. Now, ladies, you know dudes lie. Some dudes. Not me, because I was raised right. But you know, some fellas get inventive when it comes to working that game. Now, you know this. This is not news to you. But what you might not know about is the book. The player manual. The Bible that all true players consult before entering the field. I have it in front of me right now. And on page 164, paragraph B, it clearly states... Read it right here now for you. It states, some lies you must not tell. Right there in black and white, it says it. And that is why it pains me so very much to bring you this next story from our guest, Eli. Clearly, Eli, clearly you did not read this book. I was a freshman in college. I was on the wrestling team at a small college in northern Vermont and I had sustained a bad injury. I had torn my rotator cuff, and I had received uh, three separate surgeries. I looked pretty sickly, and I was in a sling. The doctors literally told me I couldn't do anything. I was pretty miserable, and so I started going on these really long walks around my dorm building and like try and find interesting stuff to do. But one day I was down in the basement of the building, and I happened upon a girl who was reading a book. I think it was on Rastafarianism or something. And so I walked up to her and I started spouting my vast knowledge of Rastafarianism, which I've learned through listening to reggae music and smoking drugs. We started chatting. I was very attracted to this girl. She mentioned that she was going to be studying abroad in Italy next semester. This was about two weeks away from winter break. I just figured she was out of my league. I needed something that was going to set me apart. And I thought, you know, I could just lie to her in some fashion and I will sleep with her and then she'll go away. It'll all be good. And so I thought, this is great. She finally asked me why I was there in the dorm at 3 o'clock and why I was wearing sweatpants and socks with sandals. To this day, I have no idea how this came into my head, but I just blurted it out really fast. I have cancer. I sort of caught myself right after I said it, but, you know, once it's out there, you just got to go with it. And she was like, oh, my God, what kind of cancer do you have? And I was like... Well, you know, it started in my stomach, but it's since spread into, like, my lymph system and everything, and the doctors are saying that they don't really know what it is, and I'm really just kind of scared, and I'm kind of alone on this whole thing, and I don't really want to tell people this. I don't know why I'm telling you this. And she just instantly, she was just eating out of my hand. Our relationship progressed rather quickly. It was great. We would just hang around my dorm room and drink and get intimate. And I thought, all I got to do is hold out for two weeks. And she would ask questions at first. She was like, why is your arm in a sling if you have stomach cancer? And I was like, oh, well, you know, it spread into my lymph system, so they had to operate on my armpit. I was just making stuff up as I went along. I had no idea what I was talking about. And it seemed like neither did she. And so one day she's like, let's go on an adventure. Let's go to near the Canadian border. I have a car and we'll drive and I'm from up there so I can like show you around. I'm like, great, let's go. And I actually put on pants for the first time I think since I met her. And it was a pretty beautiful Vermont day. Nice mountains and everything. And then she informs me that she wants to take me to her parents' house for lunch. At this point I'm like, whatever, who could these people be? All right, let's go. Her mom answers the door, and I introduce myself, and then I meet her dad, and her dad says, hey, I'm Dr. So-and-so. So I was like, maybe he's a PhD. We're talking and chatting, and finally I ask her dad what kind of doctor he is. 
you know, and he goes, oh, well, I'm an oncologist at the university hospital. That's interesting. What is an oncologist exactly? And he informed me that an oncologist was a cancer doctor. And I definitely sort of swallowed hard and uh, was like, uh-oh, this, is, this might not turn out so well. But I held it out through the whole dinner. I never mentioned anything about me being sick, and she kind of kept it to herself. And then we're driving home, and she starts doing the whole, like, maybe my dad can help you. Maybe you can switch to see a doctor up here, and it would be really great. And I was like, no, no, I have a really good doctor at home. Please don't tell your dad that I'm sick. I don't feel comfortable with that. And I think that's what tipped her off, because she started asking more questions, like what kind of cancer I had. Was it a tumor? What was my red blood cell count and all this different? And I had no idea, and so I just made it up as I went along. And then finally, one day, she, via text message, accused me of lying to her. She said, I don't believe you have cancer. I remember thinking, like, I have three options. I can sever all ties and ignore her. I mean, she's gone in like five days. What do I care? Come clean right then. Hey, I just really liked you, and I thought you wouldn't like me if I didn't, you know, whatever. Or I could pull the defensive card, which is the card that I pulled. How dare you accuse me of such things? That's just low. I don't want to talk to you anymore. You're a horrible person. And she kind of like backed up at first. She was like, I'm sorry. I just feel like there's, it's not all adding up. I just feel like you're not telling me everything. And I was like, maybe it's not your place. And we stopped hanging out as much, but at this point I'm just waiting for her to leave. And then she met another kid from my team. And she was like, hey, do you know Eli, who's also on the wrestling team? And he was like, Yeah, I do. Like, he was doing really well this season, and he tore that rotator cuff, and, like, that's a bummer. He's going to be out for a while. She lost it, and she stormed up to my dorm, and I was on my way out with a couple of my neighbors, and she just started screaming words that I won't repeat on radio, and then she just, she ran off. And I was like, wow, what a crazy girl. Like, that's weird. Why would she do that? I don't know. Three years later, I went back up to Vermont because a friend of mine up there was getting married, and uh, I'm parking my car, and uh, I look over at the car that is just pulled in next to us, and it's her. And then her face just changed, and I realized, like, oh, she's, she remembers. We were hanging out by the pool after the reception, and everyone was a little inebriated, reminiscing, talking about college, funny stories, and she just blurts out in the middle of it, hey, funny story, this kid over here once told me he had cancer so he could sleep with me. Everyone was silent for a second, and then I just, I just thought my only option was to start laughing, and so I just started laughing. And then everyone started laughing, I was like, haha, that was funny when I did that. Man, you do stupid things when you're 18, right? Haha. And even she started laughing, I will say. I, I, I do feel bad about it, but it worked. (laughs) Now that story was produced (laughs) That was foul Let's just get that out first That was foul Snap judgment in no way condones That type of behavior The story was produced, however, by Stephanie Fu. What is your worst lie? Worst lie. Lies, lies, lies. Lies, lies, lies. Your worst lie. I love you. Sorry, I'm going to be out of town that weekend. Yeah, Yeah, let's keep in touch. I told my dad that my Hebrew school teacher yelled at me, and he told the rabbi, and she got fired. I basically tell the truth all the time. My my mom had asked me just straight face, Hey, Jason, are you gay? No, I'm not gay. And I said, No, no, I'm not. You have nothing to worry about. And then she caught me with my boyfriend the next week. No, I'm not checking out other people. (laughs) Of course you were checking. I mean, I'm not an idiot. (laughs) 
You're really good in bed. No, of course I didn't log into your Facebook and stalk your inbox. I told her I was going to the bathroom and I just cut my coat and left. No, I don't have a boyfriend. Good morning. Of course I remember your name. It's, uh... And now, have you ever had your heart cut out of your chest and stomped on? I have. And friends, it hurts even to talk about why does betrayal hurt so much? Why? It's because we care. I think it's because we care. It's a cold world. It's hard to trust somebody else. You, you put it out there. You, you do what you want to do. You look for a little connection, a little somebody, somewhere that's going to be good to you the way you want to be good to them. Mm. But there's something lucky people discover early on. Everybody's out to get theirs. My wife, Rebecca, and I got divorced. I tell people that when we moved from Nashville, Tennessee to Chicago, that that was the end of us. And we tried to make it work, but after two months, she missed her family so much, she packed up and moved back to Tennessee. That's what I tell people. But the real version of the story goes more like this. Rebecca and I were moving to Chicago, and she had a job interview in Schaumburg. Just a few minutes before, she handed me the laptop with her email account open so I could find the email from her job recruiter and get the address of the interview. Meanwhile, I had suspected something was going on between Rebecca and a guy she had known her entire life named Will Bradley. I had met Will a few months after Rebecca and I started dating. Will seemed like a really nice guy. I considered him a friend, but he and Rebecca had been spending a lot more time together lately. Just the day before, I asked Rebecca, is something going on between you and Will? And she, of course, adamantly denied it, offended at the implication. But she also said that she and Will had exchanged a few emails that week about possibly hanging out that weekend. So I figured, you gave me the laptop with your account open. I'll just go read those emails. And before I even opened the first one, just seeing all these messages froze me in my tracks. My heart was racing. I opened the first email from Will with him saying that he couldn't believe this was finally happening and he wished he could tell his buddies, but they wouldn't understand. And I read that and I thought, hell, Will, come talk to me. I'll understand. I definitely knew what it was like to fall for Rebecca. I was so excited the first time we ever made love that in the middle of the event, we had to stop because I hyperventilated. She wrote an email back saying that she was falling for him. The butterfly still hadn't settled from the night before. My cell phone started beeping and telling me it was going dead. Hey, darling? Yeah? My cell phone is going dead. Can you go to the bedroom and get my charger for me? When she came back with it and tried to hand it to me, I indicated that my hands were full with the laptop, so she plugged the charger into the phone for me, and then she had to lean over me to plug it into the wall. When her body went over me and the computer, I tilted the screen down and away so she couldn't see it. I continued reading the emails. In one of the emails that Will sent Rebecca, he gave her a whole tutorial to cover her tracks on the internet. He was well-versed in this. He had cheated on his own wife many times. And I noticed that just that day, she had forwarded all of their love letters to another email account, daisylou at yahoo.com. By now, I knew how I wanted to confront her. Hey, darling? Yeah? Um, do you mind if I log out of your email and check mine? Sure. I log into my email. Compose message to daisylou at yahoo.com. Hey, darling. Hope the butterflies have settled. Love me. I hit send, log out, and I say I'm going to go take a shower. I go into the bathroom, and I lock the door behind me. Minute and a half goes by, and she's already pounding on the door, feeling completely vulnerable. I felt I had to look my best. I took a shower, and then I shaved. When I finally came out of the bathroom, we had the first of many long conversations about how she came to fall for a man she had known her entire life named Will Bradley. 
The reason I trusted Will with my wife, despite his many infidelities with his own, was because Will was Rebecca's cousin. My wife Rebecca and I got divorced because she's really close to her family. Keep it in the family, baby. That piece was produced by Matt Miller and Snap Judgment's own Mitzi Mock. But don't blame her friends. Mitzi Mock is a good and decent person who has been corrupted by forces beyond her control. Do not blame her. Blame me. You're listening to Snap Judgment, the Trixie episode. After the break, betrayal, lies, games, deceit, cheat, and a seventh grade birthday party. Do not go anywhere. You can't go anywhere. Where are you going to go exactly? Snap Judgment. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Snap Judgment. My name is Glenn Washington. Today on the show, stories of betrayal, deceit, and lies. Now, it has become axiomatic that the first casualty of war is truth. But those are just words, platitudes. What happens when a real family has to confront a real lie and a real legacy? Our own Anna Sussman brings us David's story. Joe was like the protector of the family because my, my parents were divorced when I was real young. My father was alcoholic in and out of jail. And, you know, my mother worked two jobs. She really heavily relied on him to take care of us. He graduated from high school in 1965, and he got his draft notice. So it was kind of like, well, okay, they call you, you got to go. I was 12 years old when he... Uh, left for Vietnam. I grew up in the 50s and 60s, so I used to have just this huge box of little plastic army men that I would play with. And so as far as I was concerned, my brother was going to go be a hero, you know, and he was going to come back home and we were going to live the rest of our lives, you know, so there really wasn't any worry. He wrote letters. We still have them. Uh, this one's written in uh, January 4th. It says, uh, hello everybody, how's everything going? Right now we're in the Idrang Valley searching for VC and killing them. Boy, you should see all the walking we do out here. Boy, we walk through anything, even rivers. We walk over mountains and everything. Benny, how'd your grades come out? I hope they're good. Tell me if you're going to college. If you still have that stupid idea of enlisting in the Army when you graduate, tell me, because I wouldn't want you to go through all this censored I'm going through. Boy, this place isn't good for anybody. You also said for me to take care of myself. Nothing going to happen to me. You know that. And if anything does, it's not going to be anything bad. That's it. On the day that we found out that, that he had been killed, my mother had been sick. She had the flu. So they were pounding and pounding on the door. Finally, she gets up in a robe and she's sick. And they told her that her son was killed in Vietnam. 
She collapsed. We bolted to the door, and I'll never forget, she looked up at us and said, Joey's dead. Initially, they didn't tell us how he died. Uh, it wasn't until we received a letter from his commanding officer that he was posthumously being awarded the Bronze Star with V device for valor, meaning that he did something heroic in the line of duty and was killed. This is his Bronze Star, and on the ribbon you can see the V there for valor. With that V device, they sent us a letter describing what he did. Reason for heroism in connection with military operations in the Republic of Vietnam. Specialist 4 Ledesma distinguished himself conducting a search and destroy operation near Duc Pho. The company was engaged by a numerically superior enemy force. Undaunted by this, Specialist 4 Ledesma crawled forward. He suppressed the enemy fire enough to allow his fellow platoon members to advance and close with the enemy, but was mortally wounded in this heroic act. It sounded pretty heroic to me. You know, I always had doubt in my mind whether he really did that or not because I just couldn't imagine him doing that. So that's when I decided to find out the truth about my brother's death because I always had my doubts and I knew the only way that I would be able to get to the truth was to talk to somebody who was there and I'd have to track him down and that's what I've done. The supply sergeant, he was the first one I spoke to who served with my brother. And when I told him that I wanted to find out the truth about his death, he just said to me, look, you may not find what you're looking for. What you do find, you may not like. You know, they, there's no book when you talk to these guys. They don't exaggerate anything, and they won't say anything that isn't true. When I first located the medic from that unit, I sent him a hard copy of my brother's citation for the Bronze Star with V device. I said, well, what did you think? And there was silence on the telephone. Then he said, that's not the way I remember it. So I said, what do you remember? He goes, we got off the helicopters and they just opened up on us. They were all in the open, so all they could do was hug the ground. I saw your brother get hit in the chest. I was on him within two seconds. He told me. They both all the time. They lie all the time. And they do it because it makes them look better for themselves. And they do it for the families to make them feel that it was a good cause. Because if they knew the truth, they would be appalled. I think it's so cruel. All we need is the truth. That's all we need is the truth. And I found out. You know, I haven't told my mother the, the real story. It's, it's hard for family to talk about. At this point, she's 85 years old. I don't know what she's going to gain from it. I'm not looking to place blame on anybody. I, I'm really not. All I can do is search for the truth and learn from the truth. And there was something interesting that um, the medic wrote to me. Now, he wrote, Dave, this is not as I remember it. But bottom line, as I remember Joe, he was a good, quiet soldier, did his job. He was drafted and went to duty's call as all good Americans, and he paid the ultimate price. A bronze star means nothing. In contrast to his sacrifice, I alone was with him at his death. I see his face in my dreams. David Ledesma would like to thank the members of the 35th Infantry Regiment Association for all their support in his research. And special thanks to the men who served with his brother Joe. We at Snap Judgment would like to thank David for trusting us with his story. And now, a lot of us today, we're about pushing our kids to high-pressure situations in the hope that one day they'll use the experience to excel later in life. Spelling bees, science fairs, debate, model UN, all kinds of swirling cauldrons of anxiety meant to forge young charges into a more powerful grade of personhood. And that is all well and good. But listen when I tell you, friends, write this down. 
it all amounts to nothing, nothing, when compared with the greatest social class academic challenge that a young girl will ever navigate. I'm talking about a seventh grade birthday party. Alexandra's family moved in across the yard from me when I was about five years old. She was fun and funny. She was smart. She was naughty. We quickly became the best of friends, and she had the mind of a master criminal. And I made for an awesome sidekick. Most of our scheming was in pursuit of money. To buy what? I don't even remember, but we were big into money. We'd climb into the fountain at the National Cathedral to steal the quarters. I mean, we were bad. We held a fake raffle, and we bilked our neighbors out of a hundred bucks. It was evil, but there was never a dull moment with Alexandra. And it got me away from my own house. With no dad and a mom with this giant career, my siblings and I were wildly undersupervised. Alexandra's mom was the opposite of mine. She didn't work, and she was home all the time. Yeah, she was organic before anyone knew what that meant. And I went to Alexandra's house for lunch every single day during elementary school. I was always, always over there. Alexandra had always been somewhat ahead of me on the coolness track. I was chubby. My favorite shirt was light blue with a big puffy banana on it that said, I'm bananas over you. Suffice it to say, I was not even close to being cool enough to hang out with the cool crowd at private school. Nicole was the coolest of them all. She was really tall, with this mane of blazing red hair, and she wore Benetton sweater skirts every day. Now, in November of my seventh grade year, when I told Nicole that I hadn't received my invitation to her slumber party, well, she was as confused as I was, and we agreed that it must have been lost in the mail. Well, she told me that the party was the following Saturday night, and we noted how great that was because Alexandra was having a party Friday night. Two great parties in a row, and one of them was a slumber party. It was going to be a perfect weekend. Friday night finally came, and the party in Alexandra's basement was rocking. I sipped my natural apple cider, danced to men without hats. We can dance if we want to. We can leave your friends behind. And I stared at Josh, the cutest boy in our class, by a factor of ten. We can go where we want to, a place where they will never find. I had yet to kiss a boy, and man, oh man, did I want to. Of course, I'd ordered two books from the back of Seventeen magazine, How to Get the Guy of Your Dreams and How to Kiss Like a Pro. The ad said to allow six to eight weeks for delivery, and I had, but still they didn't come. So I'd called the Better Business Bureau, and they were on the case. I really did. All of a sudden, the music stopped, and Nicole got everyone's attention to make an announcement. You guys, big bummer news. Rio got off her leash and went to the bathroom on the swimming pool cover. My mom is totally pissed, and she says I have to cancel my slumber party. What? No way! Totally uncool! No one could believe it. Everyone was crushed, especially Nicole, who was even crying a little bit. So all of his friends comforted her, and somehow we went on with Alexander's party, despite the disappointment about Nicole's. The next afternoon, I was, of course, at Alexandra's house, when around 3 o'clock she started acting antsy and somewhat mysterious. When I asked her what was up, she told me flat out, The slumber party wasn't canceled. There was never any dog poop on the swimming pool cover. The whole story was made up so that you wouldn't come to the party. And in that moment, I was completely stunned. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it to the point where I didn't believe it. I wouldn't believe it. I didn't get mad. I didn't get embarrassed. I went straight to feeling worried. Worried that I wouldn't have enough time to go get my stuff from my own house and get back to Alexandra's in time to catch a ride to Nicole's. I wanted to go to the party, so I went to the party. I went to the party. There I was standing in front of Nicole's McMansion wearing my brother's old Kelly Green sweatpants with my French cut Q107 t-shirt that I'd won off the radio as all the cool girls looked on with disbelief and disappointment that I had come. The host of the party had performed a public dramatic monologue. Everyone in the room knew that I was not welcome at the party. Everyone but me. 
And after everyone got over the initial shock of my being there, I remember having a really good time. <laughs> well, needless to say, from that point on, I moved and was moved further and further out of the cool posse and relegated to the ranks of the uncool, which was pretty much everyone else. Friendless in seventh grade is a bad place to be. I remember sitting on the couch in our family room wanting to call someone and realizing I was no longer welcome. The separation from Alexandra was really painful. I lost my best friend. I lost my fantasy family with a mom and a dad and the calm and the normalcy I so craved. And it broke my little seventh grade heart. <sighs> Rachel Hamilton, she's all right. She moved to New York City, performed a long-form improv regularly at Magnet Theater, and her own solo show had a successful run at UCB. Now, you hear him on the street, these big-shouldered brawlers pounding their chest saying, hey, there's not enough man stuff on NPR. How about some sports? How about some Harleys? all wrapped up into the big hero sandwich when Snap Judgment continues. Stay tuned. It's the Trixie episode. Okay, it's back to Snap Judgment, the Trixie episode, and I promise you a testosterone-filled journey and a testosterone-filled journey you shall have our own Snap Judgment Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. He rides a motorcycle, and you might even mistake him sometimes for one of those tough guys. He's got a little story. Break it down, Mark. Nobody wants to go to court. That's why they make you show up for court, by giving you a subpoena. But they got to give it to you in person. And I was that person. I worked for this guy. He was a pretty cool guy. He was about five years older than me. He was an attorney. Uh, but he was more of a dude. He was like a lawyer dude. Anyway, it's around dinner time. He calls me up. He says, come on over to the house. We can go over your assignments. So I uh, show up. I get there, and he's on the phone with a client. And he says, hey, uh, you know, just chill, chill out over there uh, by the couch. Uh, you can watch some uh, sports. Uh, that pizza, that pizza's a good pizza. And you can have some bass ale. So I do. I chill out. He gets done. He comes over with a stack of papers. Got my assignments. Corporate, corporate, corporate. I'm like, cool, cool, cool. Because corporations are good. They don't run away. And, uh, you know, they just stay there. They take the subpoena. And they don't attack you or get mad when you give it to them. So, uh... He gives me those, and then he's got one last one in his hand, and he could barely give it to me. I said, what? Now, normally when you serve a subpoena, they give you a description to make sure you serve the right person. Well, this had no picture. It just had three words. Big Harley guy. Big Harley guy. That's the best you can do, big Harley guy. He's like, what? The rest of these are easy. I said, hey, I'm not risking life and limb for this job. He says, I'll pay you double. And I was listening. But I said, you know, what am I supposed to do when Big Harley guy goes psycho on me? How am I supposed to take him down? He says, you don't take Big Harley guy down. You got to trick him. I said, how are we supposed to trick him? And then he points to the pizza box on the table. 
And I get it. I, I said, you know, no one's going to take an empty pizza box. You, gotta, you know, we got to fill it with something, like uh, some newspaper. So we put some newspaper in it, and it feels like a pizza. He says, you know, you need a, you need a cap. So he puts a baseball cap on me, and I have a rain slicker. And I look in the mirror, and I look pretty much like a pizza guy. So anyway, we write a big Harley guy's address on the side of the pizza box, and I take off towards his house. I get to his house, and I drive by. There's two Harleys sitting in the front, a rusty Pinto, and I park about two blocks away. I get out of the car and walk up to the house. And I can hear there's a television on inside. He's got company. And I think about it, but I ring the buzzer. And I hear some shuffling. And big Harley guy opens the door. And he is big. And he is a Harley guy. He's got, you know, big hairy chest, leather vest on, no shirt, big pot belly. He's got like a mountain of muscles covered in a layer of suet. I say, hey, I I got your pizza. And he says, I didn't order no pizza. I said, really? 765 Colson. He says, that's right, but I didn't order no pizza. I said, oh, man. I'm like, well, I can't take it back. Do you want it? And he goes, what kind is it? I said, pepperoni? And he reaches down, and he pulls out a chain. And at the end of the chain is his wallet. He goes, how much you want for it? I said, oh, I can't take any money for it. You didn't even order it. And it's only going to get cold and go to waste. You can have it. It's free. He goes, all right. He opens the door. I hand him the pizza. And I don't run away. I slowly turn, and then I hear him go, what the hell? And then I ran. (laughs) Huffing and puffing, and I get in the car, and I've got like an adrenaline rush. I can't believe I did it. I can't believe I pulled it off. But then I do like a reality check. Because on paper, Big Harley guy was scary. But in person, he was a pretty cool guy. But sometimes, there are those guys who are big and who are dangerous. And for those guys, you don't call me. You call the real heavy hitters. And I talked to two guys that qualify. Rocky. My name is Rocky Yunkin. I'm a Pennsylvania State Constable. I've been a constable for 31 years. And Yubi. My name is uh, Yubi Coleman. I've been a Pennsylvania State Constable for 17 years. Can you explain what your job is as a constable? We serve arrest warrants, criminal and uh, summary warrants. We're equipped just like the police department because we uh, serve the warrants. We are the ones that have to go into the house and bring them out. So what made you want to become a, uh, a constable? Well, there's a, there's a story on my side of it. I went to be a uh, state trooper, and the uh, height requirement was 6'6", six, six, and I was 6'8 So I couldn't be... You're 6'8 Yes, 6'8 and a half, 325 pounds. Um, did you ever play football? Uh, yes, I did. And uh, hey, you beat, what, what are you like? Six foot tall, 200 pounds. I'm a little guy. What's it like to have to go out and serve warrants? How hard is it? Well, the other day, me and Rocky went after a person. He went to the front door, I went to the back door, and we knew they were in there. We went in the house to do a search, and, and the person was hiding in the dryer. <laughs> in the dryer? In the dryer. I'll twist it up. <laughs> How big was this person? Oh, about 5'4". I'll twist it up in there, and Rocky looked at me, and he says, I, I think I'm going to fluff dry this person. He was ready to push the fluff dry on him. <laughs> and is there a, a rush that you get when you get your man? Yeah, you get a rush, yeah, because if you're hunting for him for a week and you finally catch him, yeah, you get a rush. Especially when these people, they take off running from you. I mean, if you have to chase somebody down through the woods, and like here in Connorsville, we had a guy dive in the river, swam the river, we had to go after him out there, and there's just something about when when it's all said and done, you feel like you're wore out, but then you, you have this rush like, 
I've accomplished something. <laughs> you guys are from Connellsville, Pennsylvania? Yes. What's it like there, Steelers, uh, Steelers country? They live, breathe Steelers. That's, you know. Yeah, this is, this, is one, uh, this is one little town you don't talk bad about the Steelers. All right, so you guys are there in Steelers country, and you recently came upon a Steelers van, and you were able to incorporate that into your work as constables. Can you tell me about that? Well, when we were riding down the highway, it is bright yellow. What kind of van is it? It's, it's a 1989 12-passenger van with uh, Steeler emblems all over it. Do they have the logo all over it? All over it. Even the hubcaps go. And on the back side of it, it's got uh, Blitzberg on it. And on the front, it's got Go Steelers. And the, and the windows are tinted, so you can't see in. What, what's the inside of the van like? It's all gold and black, and it's all plush. It's, it's a nice van. Who paid for the van? Well, um, I'm friends with the uh, owner of uh, Country Motors, Guy Rose, and when I noticed it, he bought it at the auction. I thought, this this got to be the thing we got to use. And did he say, go ahead and try it? Go ahead and give it a shot. We didn't even have to run it or nothing. Just We just filled it up with gas. Yep, he shook our hands and said, good luck. Give me that story, first time you used the Steeler van to uh, serve the warrants. Well, we, we drove the Steeler van down into the, it's like a project. And when we rode down into the project, we knew the gentleman that we were hunting, but uh, we had to come around a bend and there was like 15 other people standing with him. And they were all drinking beer, so we pulled up in the Steeler van. Mr. Coleman says, uh, what should we do? And I said, well, just go with the program that we talked about. We had the Steeler fight song on a uh, recorder. So he started playing it real loud out the window, started blowing the horn. We pulled up. They all turned around and yeah, go Steelers. And they come walking over and he said, man, he said, I wonder who this is. And like he, and Mr. Coleman said, the windows were tinted. And when Mr. Coleman dropped the window, well, the gentleman used some language that I can't put on your radio station, but... Uh, he basically got the idea that he was under arrest. You know, did it come preloaded with the fight song? Uh, you just got in and started playing it, or did you guys put that together yourself? No, Mr. Cole, that was Mr. Coleman's idea with that one. Yeah, we put that together. Even on our way to the jail, we played the fight song for him. Yeah, for their well, entertainment. <laughs> and they and they liked it. Yeah, they calmed him down. We even sang- did. <laughs> oh, they were even singing it. Oh yeah, we were with them. Yeah, we told them. We- Does everyone know the Steelers fight song? I mean, you're in the Steeler Nation. Trust me, they know it. Oh yeah, Steeler fans and anywhere else. How many times have you used the van? We used it one night. One night. This is a one-time deal. Yeah. Yeah, we got a gentleman that uh, we had warrants on for uh, ten years. He kept evading everybody, and uh, nobody could catch him. And uh, we just happened to think, well, we got the Steeler van. We've got all these other people. Let's just try him. Because this gentleman, as uh, soon as he'd see a police car, I can guarantee he was out the back door and gone. We tried to catch him many, many times. Well, when we pulled up in front of his house and blew the horn, he walked out with a beer in his hand and walked right over, right over to the van. And it was beautiful. You had to be there. This guy's been evading arrest for 10 years. He had to know at some point that it was coming. Well, when we got him in the van, uh, his exact words were, he said, you know, he said, I knew sooner or later somebody was going to get me. He said, but I'll tell you what, this was just, excuse my French, this was just beautiful. Just beautiful. I mean, right, if you're going to go down, this is a pretty good way to go down if you're a Steeler fan. It's a great way to go down. Well, what was your reaction, you know, when you got to the courthouse? Well, the results were overwhelming because to pick up 10 people in a matter of five hours, especially people we couldn't get before in the past, that was a great night. Like Rocky said, you got to think outside the box. And it was real creative because if you'd have seen the people come running out with their expressions, how excited they were, they would have never came out for anything else except the Steeler van. So you guys are Steelers fans yourselves? Guaranteed. Yep. What? Is there anything? Did you feel any level of guilt at all about kind of wrapping yourselves in the Steelers to deceive some people? Well, not not really, because uh, you got to realize in football, that's like when the Steelers won the uh, uh, Super Bowl with that uh, little pitch back to uh, Randall and he threw that long bomb to uh, Heinz Ward. Well, that, that, was yeah. a, that was a trick play. So we figured the Steeler van, we did our own trick Steeler play. We did an end around. <laughs> That's a good one. So, I mean, this was pretty creative, right? So what is next? Everyone's going to be like, what's next for you guys? 
you 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 can go on because I mean uh, one time a long long time ago when I first got started in this, Mr. Coleman before he became a constable used to drive for a florist, and I had a gentleman I was trying to get out of the house so Mr. Coleman was going past I asked him if he had any flowers in there. He said he did. I told him, go up and knock on the door and ask for Patty and say that somebody sent her flowers. So when he did that, the gentleman jumped out of the porch and wanted to fight because he said he wanted to know who was sending his girlfriend flowers. So Mr. Coleman <laughs> pointed over the porch and he said, this guy right here. And I told him, I said, you're under arrest. And that's when Mr. Coleman said, I'm becoming a constable. That's right, yeah. That's, that's pretty good. What's the reaction from people in town? Oh, it's everywhere we go, I was in Sheets the other day. People were coming up and I had to tell them the story and what happened. I got about eight people surrounded me. A lot of the uh, local police, too, they come up and congratulate us, tell us that that's a way to think outside the box, boys. You know, it's something that uh, uh, more law enforcement should use stuff like that. Is there had any uh, bad reaction from people? Not, not really. No, uh, not really. Even even the uh, one guy that said it was entrapment in the whole nine yards after it was all said and done, he was sitting there and he was in cuffs getting ready to go to jail. And he said, you know, he said that was pretty clever. He said, I got to give you one on that one. Yubi Coleman and uh, Rocky Yunkin, uh, thank you for being on Snap Judgment. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us, sir. This is your boy, Glenn Washington, and we're about to shut the lights off. But don't fret and frown. Podcasts, films, profiles, pictures, all available for your perusal at snapjudgment.org. what I say? Snapjudgment.org. Facebook, yes. Twitter, yes. And now, the Snap Judgment Trixie episode was produced by myself, but never alone. Never, ever alone. Would you please make some noise for the Uber producer, Mr. Mark, I did not sleep with that woman, Ristich. Rita, I cannot tell a lie, Daniels. And Stephanie Pinocchio food. Who chopped down the cherry tree? I saw her do it. Anna Sussman. And the lie detector, inspector, protector, Mr. Will Urbina. Along with Mitzi of the Fork Tongue Mock. If someone pulls you aside to let you know about some fabulous Iowa Oceanside property, you tell them no thanks. You make no deals without a corporation for public broadcasting seal of approval. Good practice. Many thanks to the CPB. Snap is inspired by Youth Speaks because the next generation can speak for itself. Youthspeaks.org. And if you're looking for a delicious morning smoothie recipe, I've got one for you. Pour some public in the blender, stir in some media, hit puree, and it's the PRX Public Radio Exchange. Putting the public in public media. PRX.org. It's tasty. Add some top shelf and it's even tastier. And while this certainly is not the news, you can't get any further away from the news. But in fact, you know, you could tell everybody down at the plant that you were the fourth member of Run DMC, belt out your own rendition of It's Tricky on your lunch break, and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is. N-P-R.